And you have to be willing to have some serious sacrifice and you've got to have what's called delayed gratification. You are not getting it. I'm going to help you out right now. You are not making four or $500,000 coming out of school. The only thing that you've got that's four or $500,000 is debt. So you have to be a good steward of your money. And that's actually making good decisions. Hi, everybody. We're in the midst of recording our next round of shows. But in lieu of going radio silent for a few weeks, I thought it would be much better to rebroadcast some of our favorite shows. There's a good chance you haven't heard this one before. But if you have, maybe you will learn something new. Hi, everybody. For our final dip into the crates, this week, we're revisiting our conversation with Dr. Edward E. Dickerson, the fourth MD. He is the founder and medical director of Cape Fear Aesthetics. We need to talk about women of color and plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures because they're happening. And Dr. Dickerson gives us the lowdown on what we need, where we should get it, and what we should look for in a surgeon or a professional. Let's get to the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Start Right Here. We are the podcast that puts the spotlight on the career paths of BIPOC beauty professionals, entrepreneurs, and creatives, as well as issues related to beauty and inclusion impacting us in the industry, as well as impacting consumers. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope that conversations on this show help fuel your path to success. Today, we're going to talk about another field that's related to beauty, and without it, the beauty industry would not be where it is today. We're going to talk about plastic surgery and its impact on our appearance. We're going to talk with Dr. Edward Dickerson, who has created a career making us look better. And we want to hear how he got his start in plastic surgery, because we don't often hear about Black plastic surgeons, but they're out there. And how he works and how he found success. So welcome, Dr. Dickerson. Thank you for having me. Before we start talking about your career path, let's begin with some fun questions in our For the Love of Beauty section. What was the first grooming or fragrance product you ever purchased? Hi, karate. Karate! <laughs> I love it. <laughs> this is a plot that just kind of like brings back memories. So the younger people won't know it. Look it up, folks. What was the latest grooming or fragrance product you tried? The latest one I tried, and it was with the help of my son. I actually like the Cantu hair stuff. What is the grooming advice that you live by or leave alone? I am not a car guy. I could care less about cars. I like a nice suit. I like a well trim hat, and you will not go to a mechanic if he got six of his own cars blocks in his front yard. So with an aesthetic surgeon, and I'll talk a little bit between the difference between a plastic surgeon and a cosmetic surgeon, but for an aesthetic surgeon, if you look like you know what you're doing, people don't ask you too many questions. But you can't be rolling up here, you know, with a dirty white coat. My grandmother said if you're not wearing a tie, you're not a real doctor anyhow. But that is your personality. 
Now, not everybody's like that. I've got friends who their mantra is scrubs, nicely monogrammed, they're comfortable, it's their thing. But my people, when they see me, they want to know, Dr. D, let me check out your cufflinks. Okay, what kind of socks you got on? But that's what makes me feel good. There is a mantra in my office, on the wall, if you are confident, you are beautiful. I love that. For me, a nice suit, a fresh tie, a fresh cut, some nice cufflinks, that's what makes me feel confident. Now, I could be 20, 30 pounds overweight, but I'm confident in how I'm feeling. And I think that's the same thing for my patient. You know, when people come in, you may see something that's obvious, but that's not what's important to them. So I usually tell them, how can I make you a little bit more confident when you're at your Zoom meeting and you're looking at yourself? How can you feel more confident when you're walking past the mirror? And it may not have anything to do with what I do as a physician. How can we basically get you some peace in your house? You know, those kind of things. Those things make me feel confident. Can you give us a brief 30-second bio? I actually grew up in a little town on Westchester, New York, called Peekskill. Matriculated through high school after that. Uh, attended an HBCU that's been in my family for over six generations, West Virginia State College. Now, for the other guys that don't know that, that was your hidden figures and the first black NBA basketball player, West Virginia State College. From there, I went to medical school at Morehouse School of Medicine via an ROTC route where I was able to go pay for by the Army. And after that, that's where I kind of formulated where I was going to go next. So after Morehouse, I did my training at Brook Army Medical Center, ultimately did my head and neck surgery, which most people know is an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And then from there, I got more experience to do facial plastic and reconstruction, ultimately wound up continuing in my military career at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, home of the 82nd Airborne, and then essentially wound up being chief of surgery, finishing up a great military career coming out into private practice in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where essentially I'm the medical director of my uh, facility. I'm really interested in this because it's fascinating to hear about your Army experience. I want to get into that. But was plastic surgery with the facial a destination or a detour? You know, I think it was a little bit of a rerouting, you know, just like on the uh, <laughs> on your map quest. You know, the first thing we decide is whether or not we're going to be a surgeon or a non-surgeon. And so I thought I was going to be a heart doctor at first. And then I was like, no, nah, I don't like this. Then I thought I was going to be a heart surgeon. Nah, I don't like this either. And then all of a sudden, is the ear, nose, and throat, or the head and neck had everything from taking care of folks literally right out of the womb all the way up into the grave. And it had different specialties with that. And so I then wound up doing a subspecialty in facial plastics and reconstructive surgery. And what's interesting is there's only about 25 black facial plastic double board certified doctors in the whole country. Wow. One of them, you will hear about them doing things like the facial transplants in California. We will do everything from, you know, for the facial plastics, the kids that have the congenital face stuff. And then from there, I then got even more into the cosmetic part where I started doing more body stuff. So it's a pretty long road, but it's once again, that constant learning that we do as a professional. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about the Army 
What skill did you learn in the military that set you up for success? There's a whole bunch. And, you know, it's being in the military is like the root of that word plastic surgery. So plastic actually comes from the Greek world to mold or to change. And even though I was Army, I think the best thing I learned was probably about ships. Ships? That's interesting. (laughs) The thing that I cut was about ships, leadership and relationship. And so being in the military, you were taught to basically lead. And to be able to lead with a certain amount of resources, and most importantly, those human resources, that was the best quality that I learned from the military. Believe it or not, surgery is the easiest thing that we do. But, you know, how to interact with your patients, more importantly, how to interact with your staff, how to basically run a business. And so the stuff that I learned at the time that I left the military as a lieutenant colonel, I had great mentors teaching me leadership. Do you remember the first surgery you ever did? Probably the first real surgery that I did was when I was doing my ear, nose, and throat and head, neck training. And you're doing children. So, of course, that has its own excitement and anxiety. So he did a tonsillectomy. And the great thing was, you know, after you see the kid back, he's not having sore throats. He's not missing school. Mom's not missing work. But more importantly, you get to take care of this kid while daddy was off to war. And he knew that his family was getting taken care of. So, you know, the service part of what I did as a military officer was a big deal. That's the family business, if you will. We are a service family. And I will tell you, there is nothing that beats the opportunity to once again be an impactful to not only leadership, but leadership for you, a bigger mission, and of course, for our great country. Yeah, that's fabulous. After leaving the Army, you started your own practice. What made you start it? And then what do you like about being on your own after being in the Army? Being in the Army is the largest corporation there is. And the ability for me to basically start a private practice was because I learned and honed those skills. And so I was able to take those skills of leadership and multitasking and to be able to start a practice very small. I mean, literally with me and two other individuals. And from there, it just kept growing and growing. So I did a little head and neck surgery, ENT. I had right next door my med spa and I was doing my Botox and my fillers. Then it went to a nose job here, a facelift there. And then soon I actually minimized what I was doing, more of the bread and butter, ear, nose, and tubes, and tonsils. I wasn't doing cancer surgery. How do you stay on top of all the changes that are happening in your field? I mean, there's so many changes. Even if you talk about the filler market, for example, it's just explosive. It is. You know, the fillers that we use in the U.S., there's probably five times as many over in Europe, and they're waiting to come over here. But as far as keeping up, you have to be a constant student. It isn't you get your MD degree and you're done. This is the one profession that mandates by law that I have to constantly do so many hours. And it's not just basically patient care. It's all about how to take care of the business. How do we basically develop our folks? So you're constantly going to meetings. And the nice thing is, you know, at least with COVID, we actually get an opportunity to do a lot of our training at home and things of that nature. I mean, it's listening to podcasts. It's basically reading an article over lunch. 
it's listening and talking to your peers on a regular basis. And I'm a solo practitioner. I do have some partners. But you have to be able to have a great network of resources because you cannot be the smartest one in the room. Yeah, this is not a good time to be the smartest one in the room. You're right about that. What is the challenge in then working with skin of color? Black skin, Hispanic, any skin that's on the higher end of the Fitzpatrick scale. What kind of precautions or what do you need to know about procedures and the skin itself that you have to keep in mind when you're working on it? Okay. So for our listeners here, you said something called the Fitzpatrick scale. So I'm going to break that down for our listeners. So the next time they read this in an article, especially an article of beauty, they have a really nice reference. I want you to think of, ladies and gentlemen, of the Fitzpatrick scale as flavors of ice cream. And number one is going to be vanilla. And number six is going to be dark chocolate. I am about a Fitzpatrick three or four. I'm like a dulce caramel, if you will. Our lovely host is somewhere around a four to five. But it's not just what we see. It's also how it reacts to the sun. So most of us in my complexion or more will actually react to the sun of tanning. The number one, which is now your very fair-skinned Caucasian with red hair, if they go under a light bulb, they'll get a sunburn. So that's part of the Fitzpatrick scale over to six. So when we talk about the skin of color, we're really talking about everything past three. So one and two are your Caucasians or your very fair-skinned, got a little bit of color, but then the flavors start to get a little richer and darker, three through six. And there is a difference from that, and hopefully we can come back and talk about What's the difference between skin of color and non-skin of color? But as we're talking about how that skin reacts, so the male or woman of color, if we actually do something to the skin, let's say it's a dark spot, okay? We notice that that dark spot is a little bit darker than the rest of us. And what that is, is the magic melanin. Now, everybody is hashtagging melanin, and one of these days we're going to talk about just how powerful and protective melanin is. But that little dark spot is where that melanin is a little bit overactive. And so what we want to be able to do is slow down that process of that activation of that dark spot. You know, that stop spot you get after a blemish or a pimple. So we want to know how to stop or prevent that from revving up. And if you get it, how do we deal with that a little bit different than my Fitzpatrick 1 and 2? That Fitzpatrick 1 and 2, I can put a laser on, put a chemical peel on. Two weeks later, they're fine. Person of color, we have to be very careful. And sometimes we have to treat it preeminently if we're going to do laser hair removal, if we're going to remove something on the skin. We want to make sure that as you heal, we are not revved up and get that what we call post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So it's a matter of also educating our patients. This is what you need to expect. And it may last for this long, but if you hang in there, we're going to be fine. Right. So somebody who is looking for a practitioner to find somebody who would understand their skin and not treat everyone's skin the same because it is not the same. Well, people come to me just because of how I look. And it's not just, you know, that skin is dramatically different. It's all about understanding the cultural biases and non-biases that come with the patient, whether or not they have a keloid whether we're talking about alopecia for the hair, whether they're talking about weight loss. Those are different cultural differences that we can relate to. Now, there are plenty of people of non-color that do that as well. 
the great thing was in the military, we had a chance to take care of the dispatch ones and twos, the three and fours, which were Asian, Japanese, Thai, Vietnamese, all the way up to lovely ladies from Africa that were right there on the equator. With all that you know, what is uh, your most requested service? We do a lot of procedures, and we take care of all flavors. Matter of fact, we like to call our practice Shapes and Flavors, because no matter what shape or flavor you come in, we got you. So the most requested non-surgical ones would be things like wrinkle relaxers, Botox, Xeomin, Dysport, and we get a lot of that for both Fitzpatrick 1 through 6. Fillers are a nice thing to take care of, you know, little fold lines in their chin and things of that nature. But they will also be unwanted facial hair. And so when you're dealing with unwanted facial hair, this is really when you want to make sure you have the technology that can safely treat people of color. And then lastly, the other non-surgical thing we got is a lot of weight loss. For the surgical side of the house, still the most common procedure is actually liposuction, whether that's in the chin or the body. The other is going to be is some sort of mommy makeover, which includes tummy tuck, Brazilian butt lifts, and things of that nature. Wow. Do you have dedicated days that you do surgery and other days that you're seeing patients? Because that sounds like a lot to manage. For those individuals that are looking for somebody in their local area, the neat thing is I actually have a three-part where we do our insurance patients, I have my own accredited operating room right here in my clinic. So safety is the biggest thing. People worried about going to the hospital with COVID. So look for those places that have accredited operating rooms co-located, and it really provides a nice boutique service. Those would be some of the tips that I would put out there. And so I may actually operate in the morning and to see my post-ops in the afternoon, which is always very nice. I even have some partners because we own our own OR. We have patients that come and get their breast augmentations done on a Saturday back to work Monday. Wow, that's great. And we deal with the professional woman like yourself. They have little time because that's the thing is control. So I don't have to worry about anything. My patients can pick what they want when they want. I want to get into fillers a little bit more. The phrase black don't crack is true, but there are some caveats. Can you speak to that? So the way that I like to talk to that, black don't crack, but it'll bend a little bit. (laughs) And explain that a little further. First of all, why does black don't crack? And that's the melanin. Now, you can also take our Latino counterparts. You know, you can go to church and look in that pew and that 80-year-old woman looks like she's about 40. And all we're doing is trying to hate on them right in the middle of church. Same on us. But I do think that, of course, the melanin is actually protecting them. So we're protecting ourselves from pollution and the sun. And a lot of this is genetic. And so that's what protects us. The other thing is what's happening in the aging process, no matter what's going on. And when we talk about what to do for the woman of color, it isn't about dealing with the skin so much. But the problem is going to be those supporting structures. In my world, fat is good in the face. If you look at your kids, we actually have that nice layer of insulation of fat. But as we mature, we start losing some fat right below our cheeks and we get a little deflated. We lose a little bit in that line that comes off of our nose to the corner of the mouth. We start seeing these smile lines that nobody's smiling about. 
And then we start losing a little fat in our temple area. So what we want to be able to do is we want to put a little bit of that thin layer of fat. And what we're trying to do is really trying to take these depressions or shadows and stop making them low lights, but making them highlights. And so if we look at our pictures in high school, you're going to see more light bouncing off of our head. We get over 40, all of a sudden those valleys start to attract light. And for my people of color, this is what really bugs them. They talk about, I got these dark circles under my eyes. And what happens is, it is not a skin problem, it's a volume problem. Now you guys can't see me, but essentially, I want everybody to take out their mirrors, that means their cell phone, and I want you to basically get the selfie ready for you. And what you're going to do is you're going to hold your cell phone, and you're going to close one of your eyes, and you're going to push right on top of your eyelid. And I want you to watch the response that you see underneath this eyelid. You're going to see a little poochy fat pad. All of us of color have this because of the way our eyes sit a little bit further in the back of our head. And by putting a little filler right in here will give us a little push-up bra and help camouflage that little shadow, if you will. And so fillers are about bringing volume back. Ladies, you can think of this product is all of a sudden you stand in front of the mirror, naked, then you put on a push-up bra. Fillers are like giving your face a little push-up bra. That's a great explanation because when I was a beauty director at Essence, we used to have these all time ink meetings. Somebody from one of the filler companies came and they did not know how to talk to me about fillers because they didn't think that my audience would be interested. And I had to explain that black doesn't crack. It does sag. I mean, it does do some other things. That's right. Gravity is a bad man. Yes. I love that you're able to explain it. And companies have hip to it because now they put black people in their commercials and in their ads. We made them. We of the experts to say, look, I have all flavors of ice cream that work for me and roll up in here. You can't just keep giving me vanilla and French vanilla. I need some Rocky Road. I need some peanut butter swirl. And so let me give you even better when it comes to fillers for the woman of color. It is actually the most requested things that we do non-surgical, which include wrinkle relaxers. And let me break that down. Okay, guys, let's go back to your selfie pictures. When you're looking at your phone, I want you guys to basically look from the eyes and above. And so essentially, what they do is when they lift their brow up, they're going to see some horizontal lines. When they make their angry face, they're going to get these vertical lines in between the brows. And then when they smile real hard, you're going to get those crow's feet. Those are wrinkles of animation. That's what you use Botox and wrinkle blockers for. Okay? From the eyes down, you will see the lines of the nasolabial fold, which is the line underneath there. From the eyes down, you don't use wrinkle relaxers. You use wrinkle fillers. So when people say, I need Botox around my mouth, I'm like, no, you need a filler from below your eyes. You need a wrinkle relaxer above your eyes. And so the great thing about that is that is a way for my audience of color to test the water. There's no cutting. There's no downtime. And even when we do fillers, we can put that mask over there done. 
And I got to tell you, the hottest filler that we do is the liquid rhinoplasty, the non-surgical nose job we can do in about five minutes. Okay, so I don't know about that. Tell me a little bit more about the liquid rhinoplasty. I've not heard of that. For the person of color, and that includes the Afro-Asiatic nose, we have thick skin and we have thin cartilage. And if we look at our profiles, we do not have as much of a height to our nose as, let's say, some of our European counterparts. And so that nose is orientated a little flat, and the area between the eyes and the tip of the nose almost looks washed out, especially in the, our Asian counterparts. And so the liquid rhinoplasty, we can put underneath the skin and lift up that nose, giving them more of height to the nose. By doing that, we can refine a tip, and we can give the appearance that the nose is less wide. Not everybody can do that. I would look for somebody that has some experience with the liquid rhinoplasty, but it allows you to test drive before you would consider even getting a surgical option. So you'd be surprised the minimally and the non-invasive things that we can do before even you can test drive your surgery beforehand. No, I think that's a great idea for people that are interested in rhinoplasty, but also to know that technology and procedures continue to evolve in this way. Let's talk about building a strong team to work with you. What do you look for and how do you assess potential hires or partners that you're going to work with? Once again, it's leadership. And leadership starts who's ever writing the checks. And it starts there and it stops there. And this takes, you know, an opportunity for you to start looking at other leaders, going to courses on leadership. Leadership is the most important part of those things. So you don't have to know it all, but you have to be smart enough to know what your strengths and weaknesses are and how do you hire somebody or get somebody that will basically maximize the opportunities and threats for you. So the first thing you need is a mirror. And you need a whiteboard to say, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm terrible at. And you need to be real with yourself. I think the other thing is you need to kind of figure out, as my friend Monty Harris, who was one of my mentors as a black facial plastic surgeon, he said, you know, if you do like but who are you and what do you want to be? And so when you're developing those things, you got to have some core values. And so my company is based on expert service, an unpolluted environment, supporting the team, self-improvement leading to financial success for everybody, making sure you execute what you need to execute so you can execute what you want to execute, and you must be loyal to the organization and the mission. That's how we reward people. That's how we discipline people. Those five things, it's pretty easy and you have to keep it simple. The other thing, you know, Doc's one-on-one is make sure your ship is right. And that first relationship is with the one who you pray to. So for me, that's one of my core values. Your next ship is the one who you live with and or marry. Because those two relationships will guide how you actually function during the day. I've been blessed to be married almost 30 years to my wife, who's also a physician, OBGYN. And that is probably my biggest asset because I have peace in my house. So if I got peace in my house, I like coming to work, but I love coming home. You know, there are so many resources out there with technology and the Internet. Before, we would have to stumble or beg somebody to be your mentor. Right now, you can basically ask Google, YouTube, I want to learn about what's the best hiring practice. 
Mm-hmm. And my administrator, Janet Little, now lets me to do my job. The only thing that I should do is the things that nobody else can do, which is being the surgeon, develop the relationship with the patient. Everything else, she can handle. And she wants to do everything that I don't want to do. And what that does for a leader, now you get the opportunity to not work in your practice. You get the opportunity to work on your practice. Yeah, that's critical. Develop a vision and a mission and some goals. Those are great tips. You mentioned mentorship. Who mentored you in plastic surgery? And do you have young Black physicians approaching you asking for mentorship? So the first question, who mentored me in plastic surgery or in medicine? Very fortunate to have generational favor. My name is Edward the Fourth. Okay. Edward Sr. was actually one of the first black pharmacists in Charleston, West Virginia, during a time, of course, segregation. So I always had that in my household. I had great leadership from my grandfather and my father. So I did not have to look outside my house. Very blessed. Once again, I call it generational favor. It's not lucky. Good Lord has smiled upon me and my family. Outside that when it comes to my professional career, believe it or not, going to a historically black college was instrumental in making sure that I was successful. One of my professors was even a professor of my mother and father, Dr. Barbara Oden. Shout out to Dr. Barbara Oden in West Virginia State College. And then there was a gentleman by the name of Colonel Hugh Stevens. He made sure that my military career was basically going down a path and she made sure my medical career, and those two ran parallel. But it was these individuals who knew my parents and literally could call them and let them know if Buddy was acting up, because I'm not Edward or Dr. I'm Buddy. I'm not. <laughs> and they made sure that I stayed in my lane. And then I had an opportunity to once again have a nurturing environment at Morehouse School of Medicine. The great Leon Lewis Sullivan, who is the president uh, there, made sure that we were going to be successful. And in my class, there was only 25 of us. That's it. We knew each other. And it was diversified. But once again, it was to basically build this position of color, whatever specialty, uh, to go out there and basically change the culture. Not just the black culture, but every culture. And then it was, once again, my move towards leaders. And they didn't necessarily have to be medical ones. Greatest lessons I learned were from infantry officers or paratroopers or, hey, my decisions are going to decide whether people live or die. And I'm not talking about medicine. I'm talking about going to war. That sense of discipline and timeliness basically allowed me to make better decisions as a clinician. Now, for those out there who are looking When you call me, I'm not going to tell you about how to do a rhinoplasty or facelift. I want to talk to you about life, just like my mentors did. Hey, what are you going to do when? Are you prepared for? How do you pick a wife, a significant other? These are things that not everybody had that generational favor for. And once again, if you get your ships right, you're going to be fine. (laughs) That is such a great tip. Reach out to it. 
we want to text you. We want to talk to you because we actually have people now that actually we can see that we can aspire to be. So if someone wanted to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you give them? So you want to take a little bit of Dr. D, Dr. M, Dr. Q, Dr. B, and you want to figure out how we let that, if I say, marinate. You know, there's some docs that I look to just because, you know what, I really like the way that guy wears that suit. Or, hey, I really like how he articulates in the spoken word or the written word. So you try to get a little bit of that. It is a lifestyle. This has to be right below your relationship with your God and your significant other. It's number three, and that's it. And you have to be willing to have some serious sacrifice, and you've got to have what's called delayed gratification. You are not getting it. I'm going to help you out right now. You are not making four or $500,000 coming out of school. The only thing that you've got that's four or $500,000 is debt. So you have to be a good steward of your money. And that's actually making good decisions. This is great advice and a reality check for so many. Because often we pick things thinking that we're going to get immediate satisfaction. Yeah, this is not for everybody. You know, all my children are not going to be physicians because they've actually seen it. When I was in medical school, you were broke. When we were in training, you were so hungry, you would order food for patients you know that could not eat because they were going to surgery in the morning. When that tray come, you're like, oh, y'all ain't going to eat that? Okay. All the fellas, yeah. And see, people don't understand that this is what it takes. It takes you sleeping in your study room and guess what? Sleep is optional. You can't tell your professor, well, I didn't know. They said, did you go to sleep? Well, I don't want to hear. You got three answers. Yes, sir. No, sir. It's my fault, sir. And in, in, in a military education, you have to really put yourself in a truly subordinate self. And you can't be, well, you can't talk to me like that. Oh, yeah, they can. Because they got something that you want. And you've got to be willing, sort of breaking the law, to make sure that you earn it and take it. And the only way that you can do that is you have to be in constant stuff. Nobody likes a part-time plastic surgeon or anything else. You just mentioned the difference between an aesthetic surgeon and a plastic. Could you just briefly tell me a little bit more about that? Okay. Most of the time we talk about a plastic surgeon. And there's different subsets. Facial plastic surgeon, full body plastic surgeon. There's oculoplastic, which means works around the eyes. But plastic is from the Greek word to mold or to change. Then we have reconstructive. So the normal, when you hear plastic and reconstructive surgeon, that means they have training in elective or cosmetic, and they also have training in reconstructive. The same guy that will basically do your face with is the same guy like me that calls when they get a gunshot to the face. The Aesthetic surgeon is kind of one that actually focuses more on the cosmetic side of the house. And you may see somebody that is a cosmetic surgeon, which means they do all the elective aesthetic things, but they don't necessarily do any more the reconstructive, putting it back together. So some of us are going to be trained in facial plastics and reconstruction, but my practice now is actually honed to more of the aesthetic side. Same thing with full body plastic surgeons. There may be a plastic surgeon who, you know, has been trained to remove breast tissue from cancer and reconstruct it. He may do that on Monday. 
on Tuesday, he may just do a breast augmentation or a breast lift. And then you have some surgeons that don't do any training in reconstructive and just do the cosmetic part where their education and their expertise is strictly elective for aesthetics procedures. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's very helpful for those who are listening when you're looking for a surgeon know whether you want something that's reconstructive based or aesthetic based and then choose the professional accordingly, you know, kind of like weigh the odds of all of these specialties to figure out which way you want to go. I would always tell the patient out there who's looking for something done, whether it's to take a mole off, to fix a skin cancer, to do a little snatching with a tummy tuck mommy makeover, is interview your surgeon. Interview them. I like when people do uh, check on me because one is I feel that they're putting skin in the game, they're investing in their time, and more importantly, a lot of their questions or concerns get answered before we actually have our first date. And now, most of us, including myself, your first date is with my nurse or myself virtually. And I think that has been fantastic for us because now the patient is not have to start playing a game on visiting turf. They're on their home court. I'm actually a visitor in their house. They are much more comfortable with the dog barking and the kids running around, and they're much more relaxed. And that interaction, although it's not in person, is a great, as we say, first date. Right. This has been fantastic and really, really enlightening in terms of the nuances of what you do. And not only as a profession, but for listeners who are interested and, you know, lots of people are interested and don't want to say they're interested in some procedures and augmentations like fillers. But now you have a little like working cheat sheet that Dr. Dickerson has given us that you'll be able to put to work. So I can't thank you enough for joining me today. And I'm excited about what the future holds for the way that aesthetic and cosmetic surgery is impacting BIPOC community. Thank you, Corinne, for having me. And hey, you stay confident so you can stay beautiful too. Thank you. That's our show for today. If you have questions about where to start in your beauty career, drop us a line at hello at beautybizcamp.com. Remember, there are many roads to success, but each of them requires you to start. So take that step forward today. See you next time.